Hello, and welcome to the BNP Paribas Asset Management Talking Heads podcast. Every week, Talking Heads will bring you in-depth insights and analysis through the lens of sustainability on the topics that really matter to investors. In this episode, we'll be discussing energy transition. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ed Lees, co-head of the Environmental Strategies Group. Welcome, Ed, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Always a pleasure to uh, come on these shows and, and talk about what's going on in the world. And indeed, there's a lot going on. That's a great segue. Uh, you know, even if we just step back a bit and, you know, just the pandemic uh, itself was enough to really shake up the world, shake up our mentality. Uh, and particularly when we think about global changes, global challenges on uh, an environment and the environment being pretty close to the top of that list. And of course, now we have the conflict in Ukraine and again, huge ramifications, you know, particularly for energy markets, but really forcing a rethink about what we consume, how we consume, where that energy is going to come from in the future. So I imagine a lot of stuff for you uh, to think about. And when it comes to investing, I'm sure it has implications for the companies you're looking at. One thing that's come up, though, if we look at, again, some of the implications of, of the conflict is that you've seen, I don't know if I would say renewed interest, but perhaps increased dependence in the short term, hopefully, on coal and other sources of energy that perhaps we thought we were moving past. So a question, will the energy transition continue apace? Or is it challenged by the energy crisis, particularly in Europe, which could take gas, coal and nuclear off the back burner? Yeah, well, that's a uh, it's a great question. It's a very topical question. Uh, there's been a lot of press headlines about this, and of course, it's driven by this massive crisis that we have, uh, which itself is based on the underlying dependency that, unfortunately, Europe has allowed itself to develop to Russian uh, gas, Russian Russian hydrocarbons, forcing uh, a lot of worries about upcoming blackouts, about um, about inventories of gas, just. The ability to, for industry to run as normal, for households to heat themselves, of course, this is spiking prices up to a huge degree, uh, which alongside food is causing a lot of angst. Uh, there are households uh, across Europe that might have to unfortunately choose between food and, and heat. Uh, this winter, I saw one headline saying that I believe the household in the, uh, the Shetland Isles would need to be bringing in about 100,000 pounds a year just to be able to afford to heat their homes this year because the, the, the added cost there. And there's certainly a lot of homes that are going to be below that mark. So it, it's something that we all feel quite personally, um, I think. And the scale of that crisis being so uh, you know, immediate and, and tangible is one that, of course, demands a thorough response. And, and that's why the response is so broad. And that's why this is not a time to just look to renewables. It's a time to look for everything that's needed. And that includes, yes, coal and gas. Uh, and so those have gotten a lifeline. Uh, and uh, well, not just that too. I mean, Germany, which uh, you know had shut down all of its nuclear, or said it was going to shut down all of its nuclear, just reversed course on some of its nuclear assets. So it's sort of an all hands on deck moment, but that does not at all 
change the fact that there is a huge call for renewables to be as much of a part of that as possible. And in fact, you know, there is really an accelerating call for that, particularly in Europe, because they do simultaneously understand the long-term strategic implications of staying beholden to fossil fuels and, and Russia. And we've seen this first and foremost in the Fit for 55 Act, but then the Repower EU Act and everything along those lines have been ratcheted up even more as this uh, conflict has continued. So, so I think that what we'll see is an openness to whatever one can get one's hands on in Europe. You know, we, we've seen one of the reasons that, that gas prices have gone up so high is Germany trying to proactively get their storage containers filled ahead of winter buying at paying almost any price in the open market. And so they've indeed achieved part of that goal and gotten their storage facilities about 80 some odd percent full. That's sort of taken some of the fears away for barring a cold snap for this winter, but the specter of the following winter uh, still remains. So you, you have these dynamics going on in the background, which you know have, have eased a little bit here recently, which, which is good. But again, you know, this is weather dependence. We'll have to see how it plays out. But I think coming back to perhaps the underlying question, I just want to reiterate that the need for renewables is more acute now than ever. I think that even if this conflict were to resolve tomorrow, the direction of travel towards renewables, towards a more secure energy future, one not as beholden to geopolitics, is firmly set in place. I think that the course there is not going to change. And I think that renewables now are going to be accelerating globally, not the least, you know, and another huge reason for that, of course, is the economics of them, which is supported by the massive US policy act, which we've just seen. So that is changes really quite significantly the economics of, of building out renewables, certainly in the US. We have seen huge build out in China as well recently. I mean, the pace of, of build out now of renewables is really quite astounding. And just think about the economics. Think about what the grid would charge you, what your gas priced gas fueled electricity is going to charge you versus what the sun charges you. The sun does not up its price every day, right? That gap is opening up more and more. It's why we see a huge acceleration in residential homes embracing solar on their roofs because that gap just keeps opening. So, you know, that is going to, even though there is this sort of these headlines of some added gas and some added coal usage for now, underneath the surface, there is there are rampant increases and sticky increases in renewables. So as you point out, if anything, we're, we're seeing increased and certainly focused interest on, on renewables. What are the main themes then that you're following? Is it solar, wind, hydrogen, electronic vehicles? Well, to a certain degree, one of the main themes we're following is the weather. Interestingly enough, one of the things that uh, one of the sources of power in around the world, particularly in Europe, is hydropower and also nuclear with France. And the weather conspired to get bad just at the worst possible times when we've needed alternate power sources, given the run-up in gas prices. We had a drought, a severe drought across Europe, even up into the UK, which has meant that we haven't had the water to cool nuclear reactors or the water for hydropower. So we, we had a coincident decline in those very important sources of power at the same time. So you know we, we're paying attention to the weather, what that means for hydro, what that means for nuclear. Thankfully, that's starting to come back. Now, the other areas that we're looking to in order to try to fill the gap 
are new build outs of wind and solar primarily. And, and so those are huge areas of focus for us right now. They're gummed up a little bit in Europe, not by the, uh, the desire to build more, but by the red tape of permitting and the like. So there's a little bit of pushback on trying to cut down that process. That's an important aspect of all of this, but they'll work their way through it. And we're going to see more and more of those developments and, and also green hydrogen. We're seeing more and more green hydrogen plans get put into place at scale. Uh, which is quite exciting. And I think those are some of the real key areas that we're looking at. What's going to be interesting as just a subset of that is the residential solar space. This has been a very active part of the market in the US where you could pay nothing up front and have big energy bill savings on day one. Someone will come in and install the solar panels for free and you just commit to a contract with them. Uh, so no money up front. You save a lot of money these days, uh, day to day. That's not been as active in Europe, but that's starting to change. So we're seeing some of the big solar companies really starting to make headway here in Europe, not just in the commercial industries, but also in residential. So that's going to be an, a very exciting trend to watch. You talked about keen interest right now in wind, green hydrogen, residential solar, uh, but of course you're a portfolio manager and you have to invest in companies. So where exactly do you see the most interesting opportunities? So. There's always a current, a consistent sort of backbone to what we do. You know, we, we have some exposure in some similar areas over time because these are, at the end of the day, areas that all have structural tailwinds. But from moment, from time to time, the areas that become a little bit more interesting shift around, to your point. And right now, one of those shifts has been towards things that are being made in America. And that's because of the recent US legislation. It's also because the legislation has a specific clause for many of the tax credits to give you an extra 10% credit on top of a core 30% if the materials are made in the US or substantial value is added in the US. There, there's some you know gray zone here between assembly and manufacture, but if substantive activity is, is taking place in the US. So this, uh, you know, so looking at things that uh, are opening up manufacturing facilities in the U.S. has that, some extra appeal to it. That also encompasses primary materials. So if we think about the fact that we're just going through this experience now where this painful experience where we're realizing the cost of being too dependent on overseas supply chains that were disrupted during COVID, uh, but also supply chains that can be altered by a foreign state. Both of those underscore the need to have secure sources that are reliable. And we therefore see a trend towards onshoring. Now, one area that this highlights is the solar and the battery value chains where China dominates these. It's also the reason, frankly, why there's so much focus on Taiwan as the center of global semiconductor manufacturing. But I'll leave that one for another podcast. But going back to the solar and battery value chain, you know, I'm thinking about things like the production of lithium and how much of that, and, and, and hence, you know, battery production uh, for EVs. Now, how much of that is controlled by Asia? Well, quite a bit. And they're long supply chain lines. And so we see a lot more focus for, or some more focus anyway, for local production of lithium. So we have some investments with lithium production in Europe. We have some investments for lithium production in North America. And those are areas where we're also trying to pay attention to operations that are doing things in a much more environmentally friendly manner. So it's a bit of a Venn diagram. Sometimes it's you know tricky to, to solve for, but we're doing our best to solve for that. So that's one area. 
I mentioned EVs. You know, one thing that we've seen is just a real sharp acceleration in sales there. There's long waiting lists now to get EVs. This is again because of the uh, the savings that you'll make. If you go and fill up your car with gas, it costs a lot more on average than uh, if you go and you charge your car with electrons. Now it depends exactly: are you charging at night at home, or are you using the expensive, you know, fast charger down at the local supermarket? But the savings is a little less now than it was a couple months ago in the U.S. when gasoline prices were, petrol prices were quite a bit higher. But the savings are still there, and I'm not even talking about the longer lifespan of the car, the fewer moving parts, the fewer repairs, and these sorts of things. Uh, just the day-to-day running uh, is a huge advantage, and everyone's realized that, right? So this is also being buoyed by legislation itself at the state level. So California just announced a target date for banning the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles, and there are lots of states in the U.S. that just follow California. So that just sort of is an automatic, uh, not every state, but there's a bunch of states that follow California on these things. We already have seen that in in Europe, right? I mean, Europe has already come out with these bans. So uh, electric vehicles, both on the residential side and on the commercial side, are really accelerating areas. And, uh, you know, we kind of see the trend that we saw for many years with solar, whereby even sophisticated entities like the IEA and other bodies that look at regularly look at energy industry and industry dynamics would under forecast the growth rate of solar and every year they had to inch it up. And we're just going through the same thing with EVs. People are underestimating uh, the rate of growth there and future adoption, I think. So that's a very exciting area. So batteries, primary materials. And on the solar side, we still very much like a lot of the electronics that go into that. So less on the panels, which can be a bit more commoditized unless you're looking at a sort of specific made in America story of which there are some good ones, but things like the inverters, the batteries, the the software that goes into that, you know, understanding these companies that are coming out with much more sophisticated software offerings, whether it's for virtual power plants, microgrids, the ability to charge fleets and have two-way charging vehicle to grid sort of back and forth, optimized timing and algorithms to help you sell power back when it's optimal. You know, we're seeing a huge rise in the input of software and machine learning into our space. So that's a very exciting area for us. One thing I've been reading a lot of headlines about as we see governments grappling with the crisis and trying to figure out how to reduce the burden on businesses and on households of these the high energy costs are excess profit taxes. So what does that mean for your space? Does it affect at all how you look at the long-term profitability of any of these different industries or companies? Yeah, this is an important question, you know, and it really highlights how you can't always just leave Mr. Market to figure things out. Capitalism does have some limits. There's a time at which you need regulators and the government to step in and understand the value of, uh, uh, well, to step in and protect different members of society. And there is a social utility function, part of which are profits, but not all of which are profits. And this is one of those times. So excess profits, uh, well, monies are going to be needed to help support members of the public, and it's going to have to come from somewhere. So a logical place, of course, to look are pockets of super normal uh, of profits, you know, of money making. And what you have to balance against that is taking away the resources from the people that you are relying on to build out your new infrastructure. So if you were to take away, you know, all 
the excess profits from you know from solar wind operators because you know they're generating it for more or less the same price there's some inflation that comes into it there's some labor issues and there's material issues and these things but generally speaking right the profits expand that you were to take that all away you're not really making yourself energy independent at the rate you want to you're not you're getting yourself out from under this geopolitical thumb that's on you you really need to accelerate and rely on those companies to spend the capex dollars to accelerate the green transition so you could do it to a certain degree but you probably don't want to cut your loan legs out from under you i think i mean perhaps i'm a little biased in this given the group that i'm in but but i think that sort of defeats your strategic goals but you know in, in moderation there's something there personally i think that a more logical place to look at is the fossil fuel industry which uh is as we all know and we've all seen the headlines making huge amounts of money but I do think if one is thinking of taxation, you need to really think about those areas that are making money that we need to start to scale back for the interest of the planet. Now, I think that's easier to do in Europe than it is in the U.S. I think it's going to be very hard probably to get a, uh, a tax through in the U.S. But, you know, I'd, I'd love to be surprised, but I think it's going to be much harder. Whereas in, in Europe, it's uh, it, it's more realistic. If I can summarize, then, Ed, uh, some of what you shared with us when we talked about maybe the short-term boosts that we've seen uh, for interest in gas and coal and nuclear, really just a requirement given the scope of the crisis that we're facing. So it's kind of all hands on deck, as you put it, but really in the medium to long term, if anything, the crisis has increased the recognition of the need for renewable energy. Some of the current themes that you're really interested in right now are wind, green hydrogen, residential solar, and an interesting point that you made, even if we think of Europe of kind of being more on the vanguard in terms of interest and investment in energy transition, after the recent U.S. legislation and tax incentives, we may see a lot more opportunity there as there's a made in America bias, if you will, following that. And then finally, on the very interesting question about uh, excess profit taxes, Given the need to fund support for companies and for households in the face of higher energy costs, you pointed out it really does need to be a balance. On one hand, certainly these are extraordinary times and companies are making, in some cases, exceptional profits that probably do need to be distributed. But you also want to leave an incentive for them to invest in the capacity that we need for the future. Well, Ed, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Daniel. It was a pleasure being here. That's it for this week's episode of Talking Heads. If you would like more information, please reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact or check out Viewpoint, our new website, for investment insights at viewpoint.bnpparibas-am.com. If you like Talking Heads, leave us a positive review and a nice rating. We recommend subscribing to Talking Heads on your favorite podcast channel. You'll receive your podcast episodes every Monday afternoon. You've been listening to the BNP Paribas Asset Management Talking Heads podcast with me, Daniel Morris, and Ed Lees, co-head of the Environmental Strategies Group. Please do join me next week. Until then, take care. This presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BNP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.